Welcome back to The Madness Continues. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. I'm sorry this has been intermittent. I know last time I was like, I'm going to get more regular. And then I like skipped a week. But I'm here uh, and I'm, I'm here to... I'm here to... I'm here. To, I'm here to t- have a conversation this time with John Marmish, friend of the show, old friend of the show. He's one of the first guys I've had on. He's a philosopher of nihilism. He had coronavirus, and I would strongly urge you, if you're listening to this, to believe that coronavirus is real. I have, um, you know, friends and family members even who don't quite believe it's real. I don't think they think it's fake. I just don't think they think it's real. Like I think they think it's. It's like some bizarre, like, yeah, man, it's like, uh, it's like the common cold, except just like slightly worse. Uh, that's not what John said. I mean, John and his wife both had it, and she was very seriously, I mean, it, it was bad. Like, it was really bad. I think she had to be placed on a ventilator, he'll say on the show. And um, <clears throat> I just, you know, we who knows what, what this is going to be like for anybody. It seems like the most bizarre illness I've I, I you know certainly I've ever experienced in my life I I haven't had it I don't want to have it I hope you don't get it and it just feels like a really germane conversation to have uh, right now with a, a nihilist I mean how somebody's approaching coronavirus says so much about their life and how they construct meaning in it and so much of that has to do with John's considerations of nihilism the construction of meaning how one finds meaning in their life and in the universe and and um i that thought didn't escape me we talk around it a lot in this episode um he's also you know one of the philosophers who's founded the first philosophy magazine on humor i mean magazine pardon me scholarly uh academic journals of humor Part of me, John, and and anyone related to uh, the 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 humor uh, journal, as part of me, I I did not mean to misspoke, misspeak. Goodness gracious, boy, one homemade uh, ginger beer, and I'm falling to pieces. Anyway, everybody, I, I don't want to take up all of this time with all of this, you know, just this this stuff. But um, thank you again for listening and. Check out oh, The Happiest Hour on Facebook. It's the other, it's a live stream I've been doing with uh, Lancey Joe Richardson, the uh, the comedian. Also, we have a lot of guests on. It's really fun. Uh, just check us out on Facebook. There will be a link to that. And otherwise, uh, thank you guys for tuning in and being with us again. Here's John Marmish, one of my buddies. Uh, you know, just a lot of different kinds of real intellectuals and stuff and i that's been pretty cool some artists which has been nice but yeah three different porn stars it's been uh sylvia sage chanel preston rocco Sofredi, and then i think i might have tom tommy gunn coming on soon and then uh danielle derrick i think just agreed to do the show i find that i just i think that is such an interesting career not to digress i did not expect to talk to you about this at all by the way <laughs> <laughs> Points may be more interesting than nihilism, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I think it's. I think that they're both pursuits that are trying to answer the same question. If that makes any sense, it makes any sense. I just. I think it's such an interesting, weird, th- strange thing, and it's fascinating to talk to people who do it. Chanel Preston is 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 really an intelligent woman, and that uh-huh. was like such a great conversation. And Rocco Sofredi has had such an interesting career. He's kind of the most famous male porn star, certainly internationally. Um, and he's in Italy. He's like a regular, he's just like a celebrity. Like he's on TV and he does interviews and it's like anything else, uh, which I think is kind of fascinating. He was the subject of a Netflix documentary, which was the, what caused me to want to reach out to him. He, for all intents and purposes, he's kind of mostly like a normal person, except his day job is having sex on camera, which is, which is wild. So, I just think it's a fascinating. Didn't, didn't, wasn't there a, a a woman? I remember a friend of mine talking about um, a female. I think she was a Italian porn star. Became like the prime minister of Italy or something like that. What? Yeah, I said. 
I, I, I'm not well versed in this, but uh, I remember a friend of mine uh, mentioning that. So, yeah, maybe it's not such a, uh, you know, it's not a profession that's looked down upon so much in other places. What? Well, yeah, it's Ilona Stoller, widely known as Chicciolina, is a Hungarian Italian porn star, singer, and, pol- and politician. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh man! I well, now maybe I gotta... there are some uh, some real convergences between politics and that line of work. So, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Nothing to read into. I mean, there definitely was with this president. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh. Well, uh, this is this is fun, John. I um, I I think it's cool to. I wanted to have you on for a couple reasons. One, I wanted to catch up, and uh, it's been a while since we've spoken, and then. Um, the other thing was I wanted to talk about as a philosopher of nihilism. What is your what What has your experience of this whole pandemic been? Because I feel like <laughs> I feel like I, everybody who I've spoken with has been talking about how this is like vaguely like we're living in some kind of weird Stephen King novel of a situation, and uh, and and it's weird because it is kind of the it's it's you know in today's it's funny. I just I wrote a I wrote a um, a book a while ago, and it was a book about stoicism and sales. It has nothing to do with deep philosophical topics, really. Although I guess stoicism is a philosophical topic, but it has nothing to do with nihilism. But at the beginning of the book, I noted that I was like the 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 most popular version of anything is true crime, and it doesn't. I don't know why that is, but it's just super popular. And I think part of the reason mm-hmm. is that most people are living these kind of lives where they just don't touch anything that reminds them of the reality of, of death or in therefore existence. It's just like, they're all kind of all on autopilot mostly. That doesn't mean that people's lives are easy, but like nobody gets confronted normally with the, you know, with their own sense of being or mortality or existence or, or the end of existence. And as a result, the only time people do that, they have to like seek it out and then going and seeing true crime, you know, podcasts or movies or whatever, or TV shows or Netflix, whatever is the one that reminds them. But now we're in this situation in which, you know, suddenly that could be true because there's like, we're in this situation where it's like, hey, there's a pandemic, you know, and if it wasn't Mm -hmm. this, I've told people before, I'm like, you know, it could have been, it it might not have been a pandemic, but it could easily have been an asteroid hit the earth or there was a nuclear accident. Or there, or it is a pandemic, except it's you know ten x worse or something. And I feel like the as a philosopher of nihilism, are is anybody like turning to you, John, to like ask for answers? <laughs> like what? <laughs> How they should be feeling wrong, right now? <laughs> I'm the wrong person to turn to for answers. I think, but, but I mean, I, I see what you're saying about uh, true crime, and maybe. I mean, maybe there. I've been surprised that um, at how many people have. Um, been highlighting the positive side of the lifestyle change during the pandemic. Uh, you know, certainly a, a friend of mine, he was, uh, you know, bemoaning everything that was happening and saying that, you know, he's, he's become quite depressed over, you know, over um, all of this, but that uh, he is uh, familiar with some people who actually have seen this as a turn for the better, that it's, um, you know, it's changed the pace of life. It's, force people to, you know, slow down, not commute, uh, you know, stay at home, maybe read more, turn inwards rather than constantly being obsessed with, you know, running to the gym, you know, running to the grocery store, running to work and all of that. So maybe it does encourage a a kind of, um, you know, deeper reflection and, uh, you know, philosophical turn. But, you know, I think it's kind of interesting what you said about true crime, because, it did. I was thinking how this need for something extraordinary in life is something that was always with us. Um, I think it's the root of religion. You know, mm. People, people um, in everyday, normal, you know, uh, kind of mundane life, they many of them believe that there's this supernatural realm, this realm that they can't see, taste, touch, or feel. That's you know so much more powerful and larger than the life that they're living, and maybe pandemic in a way it fulfills that need as well it gives people a peek you know behind the curtain so there's you know there's something extraordinary about the world rather than just the tediousness of everyday life 
So, I mean, I suppose uh, well, it could, you know, re- it could reinforce the tediousness of everyday life in a way well, as well. It's, but, it's, you know. it's, fu- it's funny, though, because I think you're right about that. We should talk for a second, I think, about the positives. Um, but let's put that aside to the moment or the things that people have been saying in terms of the positives. But because mm-hmm. I've also had a number of those discussions. But I think it's fascinating because there is something you can I can see very easily how a plague just it feels r- religious because it's invisible it's affecting things in the world around you i mean you're in you know california you're in uh, marin marin county i think and unless you've mm-hmm. you know unless you've you've escaped to the countryside like like uh, what Newton? No, during... we're, we're I'm right in the middle of the the biggest hot spot in the country right now. Apparently, apparently the uh, um, the uh, number of cases and per capita in Marin County is uh, is larger than any place else. So. Really? Wow. Well, we need you to stay safe. Okay, so definitely uh, be cautious. But the I've already the... had it. I've had it. Oh, did you really? <laughs> did you already have it? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. The last time I was in contact with you was um, when I was going to the uh, APA conference in Chicago. Yeah. And uh, when I when I got back home from that conference, I got really sick. And then my wife got really sick and developed pneumonia, had to go to the hospital. Um, and we're better now. But uh, yeah, yeah, both of us had it. So have you had, did you have, this is, I did not know that. That's so interesting. Did you have the... Um the the what the antibody test or something did you get tested for it or 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 were you just kind of diagnosed from doctors and being like look this is these are the symptoms because I remember talking to you about that time when you were headed to Chicago I was in New York I think at the time um, yeah you said you were you were over in uh, yeah in New York City um that is that's nuts so you you just can you talk about that experience because I haven't had anybody on the pod talk about it yet and and in in here's why i think this is important if you don't mind is i i have uh-huh. i don't have a tremendous following but i have a small and dedicated following and one of the things that occurred to me and just to speak to the mysterious religiousness of this pandemic is like i leave the city of chicago i go to western michigan because i come back from new york it's a long story but come back from new york to chicago um then I head to Western Michigan to go spend some time with my parents after quarantining for a number of weeks, kind of just by myself. And as soon as I left the city and got into the countryside, like outside mm-hmm. of the city of Chicago, it felt like nothing was happening. Like nobody was social distancing. Nobody was wearing masks. Nobody gave, right. nobody, nobody believed that it was even happening. And there was a part of me that really thought, I don't think I blame people for living outside of cities for questioning whether or not this is even really occurring. Most of the people outside the cities probably don't know anybody who has had it. I mean, I know, I know, I have friends, including you now, who I know who have had it. Um, I, I don't think I have, uh, but I think it is. It's just important that they understand that it's real, and that like, if you know, if people are listening and they know me and they're questioning whether or not it's real, well, now via one degree of separation, you know, somebody who's had it uh, in John. So, do you mind talking about it for right. a second? Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I mean, I was I was um, the ignorant one myself when I went to Chicago. It wasn't even on my radar. So, um, you know, I went to the um, the American Philosophical Association conference, the Central Division, and you know, I was like shaking hands and Ooh, the party, people. the party, the party division. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> a big philosophical party, um, and, and we were doing a um, uh, a, um, a session on philosophy of humor, and one of the uh, participants who I didn't know uh, previously came into the room, and I, you know, greeted him and went to grab his hand and shake his hand, and he recoiled from me, and uh, he said, "I'm trying. I don't want to shake your hand." And I thought, "What an asshole!" <laughs> that was my reaction to it. I thought he was just being a jerk. Of course, it was me that was being the, you know, the, the dumb shit. Um, I, when I got back to, uh, uh, to California, went back to school, back to work, and started you know, feeling kind of off. Uh, began with just a sore throat, and then um, I got developed a fever, and so I didn't go into work um, for the rest of the week. We were just right before spring break, so I would have another week off to recuperate, I thought. 
but I just got really, really sick. Um, I mean, it felt like a really bad flu, but yeah. not not like a flu I've ever had before. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling when you're getting sick. Like it's almost like your skin's tingling. Oh yeah. Um, but it's you know like the way I get it's like my in my scalp. It feels all sensitive to the touch. I got that feeling deep in my body. It was as though all of my organs were tingling. And so there were like these intense, weird, you know, internal body aches for, it was over a week. Um, probably, it was probably uh, close to two weeks that, that I was suffering with that. Didn't leave the house. My wife contracted it and she has um, asthma. So, um, you know, as she got progressively sicker and sicker, she started developing problems with her, with her breathing. Wow. And by the time, by the time she got scared because she wasn't getting better, um, you know, I was starting to feel better. And so, um, there was one day where she said, I think I got to go to the hospital. And I drove her down to, um, our local hospital here, which had set up a, um, triage center for yep. uh, COVID to keep people separated from the general um, population. And she went in, they had a doctor come and look at her. The doctor told her, uh, and now we're talking, what, January, February, I think this was in March. The doctor wow. told her, you've got all the symptoms of um, COVID. And he was, he suggested that she have um, a test, but the hospital wouldn't approve it uh, because they were rationing tests at that point. So um, they did an x-ray. She had pneumonia. She had developed pneumonia. And they put her on steroids and uh, um, some other medications, which cleared it up, and she got better. They wouldn't give me a test because I was asymptomatic at that point. So mm. we never, you know, we were never actually tested. And I still haven't had a, an antibody test. But um, from what the doctor said to my wife, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm presuming that's, uh, that's what we had because I was right at the beginning of, um, of, you know, of the whole thing. Right after that, our school closed down. Um, yep. We had to immediately switch to online uh, uh, instruction. Um, so couldn't even set foot on, you know, on campus. And we were just kind of locked away here in the house for, you know, for a couple of months, just, you know, four days out to get food. And eventually I started, you know, going out and running and, you know, hiking and all of that again, but still steering clear of people. Yeah. So that was my, that was my experience of it. And, you know, like, like you, I'm, you know, I, I was kind of ignorant of the whole thing. I was thinking, oh, it can't really be that bad. It's got to be, you know, like a flu, but. It's, yeah, it's pretty nasty. It's really nasty. And especially as my wife says, you know, when you reach our age and we're in the fifties now, when you reach our age, everyone has an underlying health condition. Yep. So these, these people who say, well, I'm healthy, you know, uh, it's like everyone's got something. Everyone's got something that it can, uh, you know, it can uh, uh, exploit and take, uh, take advantage of. Well, I mean, just to talk again about the quasi religiousness of this, there's kind of this, the, the fact that any anybody can get it and you have no idea whether or not you have it i mean you just don't have any you there are people who can get it who are completely asymptomatic and then there are people who can get it who like your wife are very to you know have to go to the hospital you know get steroids maybe get put even intubated i mean uh, all of these things and uh-huh. And it, it, and it's strange, John, because like you hear, I'm hearing like reports of people, you know, you can read in the New York Times, if you believe them, uh, <laughs> the number of conversations I've had with my Republican family where they're like, I'll cite the New York Times and they'll be like, oh, well, you know, might as well just have made it up. I'm like, goodness gracious, you guys. Uh, but the, if, you know, you can read in the New York Times where there are reports of like you know people in their 30s even who are otherwise uh-huh. extremely health- healthy people who have horrible horrible reactions to the virus and then have I mean there was a guy who was I think he was an Olympic um he might have been an Olympic swimmer uh who was you know very excited to obviously to go to the Olympics this year which are now not happening and uh-huh. And had to, he was, same thing, ended up in the hospital, horrible. And the damage to that guy's lungs, he's like, I'm, I'm, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to compete next year based on the fact that 
all of this has happened to me. And and then, you know, by the same token, you have people who just have no reaction at all and don't seem to have it whatsoever or, or no issue. Well, you know, it, you know, what, what came to my mind when I heard people uh, not taking it seriously or some of, when I was growing up, some of the um, arguments that my friends would have about uh, why smoking isn't bad for you, yeah. And sure, it's true that there's a lot of people who smoke their entire lives and they, you know, nothing ever happens to them. But I think it's about 30% of people who do smoke, you know, come down with some sort of, um, you know, some sort of smoking related illness. And the fact of the matter is you don't know what your underlying conditions are or what your genetic predisposition is or what it is about your physiology that might make you susceptible to being one of those people that, you know, that is adversely affected. So... You know, I mean, I yeah. suppose there are, there are some people that are willing to take that chance. Um, yeah, it's like all it, that's why I say it's like it's like uh, religious or something is because there's like a strange uh-huh. kind of you don't know when or how judgment is going to come down upon you. And for whatever you did, you know, uh, like, you know, I mean, you went to an APA conference. I can't believe a whole lot of sinful things happened. <laughs> The American Philosophical Association. Yeah, man, I'm sure it gets pretty. I'm sure it gets pretty hyphy uh, around there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, I mean, have you ever read that um, that paper by Susan Sontag? Um, I think the initial version of it was um, uh, cancer as a metaphor, and then she she did uh, a version AIDS as a metaphor, which uh, was focused on the, um, the kind of moral oh, AIDS, AIDS of AIDS uh, and its metaphors, I think, right? Is that what, it, what the title yeah, was? Yeah. yeah, I think it's, yeah, so, Susan, yeah, AIDS and Susan its metaphors, Fontag, I think. Yeah. Right, so, I mean, there, you know, for, you know, traditionally there there has been this kind of moral paint that's been, uh, you know, associated with, uh, with illness. Like if you get ill, there must be something wrong with you, you know, and in the worst case, you know, people think that there's something morally wrong with you and not just constitutionally or uh, physiologically wrong with you. Uh, it's, and I do think that, um, you know, the fact that these illnesses, they, they appear to just all of a sudden come out of nowhere and then mm-hmm. maybe you know, this is where Trump gets his, uh, you know, some of the stuff he's saying about it magically disappearing. It's like, it's a, it's a confession that we don't really understand the nature of the diseases, you know, where they come from, you know, who's going to be affected by them. And, you know, that's, that's very, very similar to, you know, Freud calls it the uncanny, you know, yeah. these huge forces that we just don't rationally comprehend. And so, yeah, it does have a kind of, um, you know, a mystical or a religious aspect to it, which is terrifying, you know, which is the nature of the sublime, um, you know, sort of reaction. There's something sublime and terrifying about it. But as with the sublime, I think there's also something sort of uh, fascinating and, um, you know, uh, interesting about it as well. You know, the, the sublime or the holy is something that, you know, it uh, it captures people's imaginations. It uh, it, uh, it makes gives them gives them this feeling like the world is bigger than they gave it credit for. I mean, mm. when I when I was a kid, that was the reason why I was so fascinated with things like UFOs and Bigfoot and same phenomenon. Same. Yeah, it's because it it was a replacement for religion for me. It was this you know this feeling like yeah, the world is the world isn't completely uh, explained. Um, despite what scientists may tell me, the world still has mystery in it. And that was, you know, that was fascinating to me. And I think, you know, that it touches with that religious impulse. And, you know, maybe, maybe something like a, you know, a pandemic has a bit of that uh, going, uh, going on with it as well. So, you I, know, I so, think, well, I think you're right about that. Yeah. I think that makes sense because I think that it's, it's sort of a strange natural disaster because it, 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 you know, I mean, everybody – here's one, one of the things that might tie into some of the positive things that happened from it. But when you say this is a sublime – let me just say this for the sake of the, the listener. When you say the sublime, you're referring to the feeling of uh, – that someone might get when they stare into like a giant thunderstorm that's rolling through or, you know, the – or witnessing. If you've ever been, you know, whale watching or something, I sometimes get a feeling where I'm like, you're next to this – 
enormously powerful, humongous, depending on the whale, I guess, creature that could easily do, it could just destroy you if it wanted to. Right. Um, or, you exactly. know, the same thing like I... Like that, that feeling of a thunderstorm where there's it's not a feeling of weakness or insignificance necessarily, but it's a feeling of like the universe is so much bigger and larger and your tiny part in it is just so small. And it doesn't mean it's not important, but there's this feeling of like being potentially dwarfed by this larger force that is impersonal and also uh, exists around you and within you and all around you. That's kind of what we're talking about, right? Right. right. Yeah. But also also an appreciation of it. It's an aesthetic um, reaction. So the, you know, the sublime reaction, uh, I guess, you know, we're, we're talking about um, Kant and <clears throat> Burke who characterize it as sort of a negative pleasure as opposed mm. to the positive pleasure of beauty, wherein, yeah, there, you feel, you feel vulnerable to something larger than you, but you're in awe of your, um, this thing that uh, could crush you. And so yeah. there's, it's it's not it's it's terror, but it's a positive terror in which you're gaining an aesthetic pleasure from being in the presence of that terror. Yeah, yeah. So, that's like, you know, the, the, um, being ahead. being in the presence of the holy is sublime. Being, as you said, in the presence, if you're able to distance yourself from um, you know practical concerns of um, you know of uh, like running away from a thunderstorm if you can behold a thunderstorm in all of its awesome glory that's sublime looking at Niagara Falls you know that's a sublime experience so yeah it, there's a sense of something being much larger and powerful than you and also of your own vulnerability in relation to that and there's an appreciation of it an aesthetic appreciation of it because I think that that definitely occurs I think with this, you know, one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of friends about, especially comedians, is I've been having, I think, this is, this is an indication that I need to truly talk to a professional, <laughs> but I've been having, I've been having dreams or waking up in the middle of the night with this feeling of like, oh my God, I could be like that, one day, this, uh, you know, the, the veil of night will fall over this mortal coil and all will be silence and darkness, and uh-huh. it's strange to think about because, you know, obviously this virus is going around and that's happening to there's been, you know, what, three Viet Vietnams now in the last uh, five months in America, thanks to COVID-19. And it's very strange to think about that that is that is a reality that all people will eventually have a passage that we will all eventually have to make. And it's strange to think about because there won't be a subject. There won't be a you who is there to experience it because you'll, your perception of reality will just be over. The lights will be off. And it's that. Yeah. yeah, And it's, it's odd because you think it, there's what is uh, there's, you don't have no idea what's on the other side of that. And for you, you know, there isn't anything. It's, you know, I mean, obviously this is where the religious belief comes in. And so it's strange because there's, there's a, there's an almost like, like you said, like sublime, there's almost a touch of the kind of this religious experience, not just in the how and the what that is happening, but also in this, in its ramifications. Like I had a conversation with my grandmother, who's a, um, you know, a Christian and a, a Baptist. Um, so read into that what you will. And, she was like, I have no fear of this virus. She's like, if if the Lord decides it's my time to go, then it's my time to go, and that's the way it's going to be. And I have no fear at all of of you know of walking around or dealing with this virus. So she's a she's almost ninety and is happy to go around continuing showing houses as a realtor, which is her profession that she will do, I'm sure, until she physically cannot even do it anymore. And I find that like it's it's like this the two are almost intertwined together like this feeling of and i know you're not a philosopher of religion necessarily but i think that nihilism or the concept of meaning has something to do here because there's somebody's like the presentation of the of of the like it's almost like someone is is reading into this meaning because they're trying to come up with a story for what this is current what this whole pandemic it currently means or something does that make any sense i'm not sure if i'm doing a good job of describing this no that makes perfect sense and i you know i think you're you're right in connecting the fear of death or the awareness of death with the sublime feeling which in turn is connected with the religious um feeling um you know 
so the existentialists like Heidegger claim that what makes us human is that we're beings towards death, that we, um, we are aware of our finitude. The problem is that in everyday life, and um, Heidegger calls it das Mann, the they, we get entangled in, you know, in, um, in these social relationships um, that encourage us to forget or to distance ourselves from that awareness of our finitude. And mm. so we become busy, you know, with our everyday meaningless tasks, you know, got to get to work, got to get to the gym, got to, got to go get my Twinkies at the, you know, at the grocery store. And these consume us and we think that they're all important. Of course, that's a lie. You know, it's a lie. All of us, uh, the most important thing is to, Know know who you are is to reflect on who you are, and you are a finite being. And something like the pandemic um, is something that it kind of forces that awareness. Mm. Um, I would say that, um, you know, in my view, folks that deny that are either, they're one of two things. They're either extraordinary beings who have overcome, you know, the human fear of death, (laughs) or they're what existentialists (laughs) would call inauthentic. Um, you know, they're they're lying to themselves. Uh, they're, you know, they're trying to ignore something that is, um, you know, that's important for them to pay attention to, which is the reality of your finitude. And, you know, the religious, the religious impulse, I think, is a direct response to that, you know, that insistent kind of voice in your head, which is saying, you're going to die. You're, you're going to die. It's a reality. It's that, that's a voice that three o'clock in the morning wakes me up and I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm absolutely <laughs> terrified of it. You know, oh, you, like, oh I, you're having, be, you're having that dream too. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's always you know, a student once told me that um, three o'clock in the morning was the period, the time that Jesus died on the cross, I think trying to comfort me. And that just made, made me more terrified. It freaked yeah. me out even more. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, and that when that when that voice starts echoing in my head, I want to know, you know what does that mean? What's what is it? What's going to happen after I die? And some people are willing to give you answers to that. I think that's that's what religion is. You know, is um, is in, in the business to do, of to give you. Yeah. It's yeah, in the exactly. business of that. Um, exactly. I, you know. I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I'm. You know. I much prefer. Um, the honesty of someone like Socrates who says, well, if you have that type of wisdom, you know, good for you, but I, I can't, you know, I can't, uh, I can't pretend to have that type of wisdom. You know, I, I have no idea what happens after death. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because I think that the, the refusal for, you know, whatever the sociological studies say in terms of temperament for conservatives versus liberals um, one of those temperamental differences is typically a desire to have an answer to a question already in hand. That there's a mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of certainty that, and I know that p- the political spectrum in this regard a little bit is like a horseshoe. But I think that the I think the the data show that generally speaking, by and large, conservatives typically like to have an answer to the question. Um, in hand, there's a kind of anxiety that comes along with not having an answer to the question. And liberals typically are more c- comfortable not having an answer and then going through the kind of public discourse in order to like do the intellectual work of having the answer. I think uh, conservatives typically like the intellectual work having already been done, and they're like, "This is the answer." Now, I'm sure someone listening to this is going to roll their eyes pretty hard at that, but. But I'm pretty sure that's what some of the work that like Jonathan Haidt has has done is is talked about that. Um, he's, Maybe uh, so, but I, I have to I have to admit that I've run into um, plenty of liberals who are pretty uh, you know self certain that the, that their worldview was the correct one and they were yeah. immune to argument. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think those definitely I, when you go to the extreme left, there's definitely yeah. you know extreme leftists who are very very certain and confident in their you know their views. Oh, so you've also been to Portland, Oregon. Uh, <laughs> I live in Marin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't have to go to Portland. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I was just in Portland. I did some comedy actually during this pandemic, and uh, which was a total risk and was dumb, I admit. But uh, I wore a mask the whole the whole time and have been fine, uh-huh. so I suspect. 
But I ended up doing some comedy at an outdoor comedy show. That was the first time I'd done comedy in months. And I was, I had never been to Portland before and heard all the stories about Portland. And when I got there, I was like, man, it is, it is, it is like, I mean, I don't think a bluer part of the country exists. Like it was so blue. It was Navy (laughs) blue. I mean, it was, Uh it was, it was Royal blue. It was amazing how blue it was, but that's neither here nor there. I love Portland. It's a great town. I really loved it. It's a. It was a great time. We went to the Wilmette, Va- a bunch of Wilmette Valley um, wineries while we were out there. It was wonderful. But um, the point, the point that I'm making though is, um, look, I think those, I think by and large, those things are true. You are correct. I think that there's a, there's definitely that proclivity is amongst all people. I think generally speaking, it's 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 more on the political right. Um, I could be wrong, but the point of me saying that is only to say that I think that there is a desire to have a kind of certain answer to the question and that the confrontation with putting a mask on is the acknowledgement that there is a risk of death that exists in the world. And it's not the same as putting a helmet on on a motorcycle or it's not the same as, uh, it's not quite the same, although it is a similar thing. Um, You know, you're not, just going out into the world is engaging in an activity and being around other people is engaging in a potentially mortal activity if you're not properly, you know, wearing a mask or et cetera. And I think that there, there are, I think, a group of, in my, what I'm noticing is that the group of people who are most resistant to wanting to do that are probably more likely are the group of people who want to deny the existence of death or that the, the potential for death is outside of their hands. And it seems like, just saying, like, look, it's it's up to it's up to the Lord whether or not I live is kind of an abandonment of the of really confronting that question. It's it's almost an abdication of. It's not quite acceptance. It's it's a type of rejection, if that makes any sense. Like yeah, the yeah, actual, I, ex- yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I was I was just going to say that I think um, you know what I've heard. Uh, you know, um, I guess you would generally you know categorize them as people on people on the right that. Are, don't want to wear masks um, saying it. I mean, it reminds me of a lot of the, you know, arguments like I, you know, had mentioned about smoking that I, um, I recall hearing from people in the past. Um, they focus on um, personal freedom. You know, I should have the freedom to do what I want, um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not hostile to that. I, you know, I support individual freedom to, you know, for people to do what you want. I think the difference with something like putting on a mask, though, is that there's a community aspect to this as well. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about, um, you know, exposing yourself to a disease, I suppose that's fine if you're living in isolation and um, you don't risk spreading the disease to, you know, other vulnerable people in your community. What what it comes across to me as is um, a sort of callousness to the wants and the uh, the needs of people around them that yeah. um, they don't uh, they don't seem to be taking into account that there are vulnerable people in their community who sounds like they don't care about them <laughs> yeah well like i don't think me. they i don't think they think about them and I, th- I think that that's why it's if you're if you're confronted with that question which is like look is your how much do you care about people in your community and are you willing to forego a small amount of personal freedom the question that they're they're answering in their minds is not one of, and this is probably why this is such a big issue. The question in their minds is not one of, am I going to just put a mask on and be slightly uncomfortable in order for me to protect other people? The questions are, is, am I going to acknowledge the reality of my own potential death in this circumstance? And that's a way different question that they're answering. It's easier to maybe believe, especially if you don't know anyone and you're not seeing anything in your community. It's a lot easier to believe that that isn't it isn't tr- it's not a risk and it isn't true than it is for me to accept that I'm going to be, you know, past the veil of midnight one day and it could be sooner than I think because I'm going to I'm I'm going to maybe get this virus and something is going to happen. I think that that's maybe right. the actual barrier to entry for that concept for a lot of these people. Well, I think I, I, you know, I agree with what you're saying here. I've heard, you know, on television, um, people that were interviewed, uh, you know, who who didn't want to wear masks and who were downplaying the whole pandemic, also 
saying that um, they just didn't think that they were going to get it. And I think what they were what they were expressing was a skepticism about the entire phenomenon. Like oh, they yeah. don't believe it's a real thing. And to me, what that connects up with is again religiously what feels to me in this country like a drift away from traditional religion towards politics as a religion. Because, I mean, the mask has become symbolic. It, it's not just, um, you know, a health um, issue for a lot, for, you know, for folks on either side of the issue. It also seems to have become symbolic of who you have faith in. Who do yeah. you have faith in? You know, and the people on the left, um, you know, have faith in a certain, you know, group of, uh, of experts and officials. And on the other side, I mean, it, honestly, it seems to me that the people that uh, the, the the forces that they have faith in is their president. The, the president has become almost like this religious figure, it seems to me. Politic, mm-hmm. That politics has become the religion. Mm-hmm. You know? It's it's. I mean, it's strange to me. I you know I have family members and uh, and friends who are supporters of Trump, and when I talk with them about uh, you know about Trump, um, Trump could do anything. Oh yeah, he, he can do, he can do any. He can contradict himself. Um, he can do things that um, that were condemned, um, uh, you know, when other presidents were doing them, just because they have faith in Trump, whatever Trump does. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's not reasonable. That's not rational. That's not philosophical. That's that's religious. And so, you know, with the mask wearing, I think this is, you know, it's almost like a Christian wearing a cross, you know. You don't wear a mask to show that who, where your faith lies. I think that oh, yeah. that's, a, that's an aspect of it as well. I think that's true, and I think that the, it's fascinating, man, because I think that one of the – I mean, I think that in, you're, you're kind of uniquely in a position to have some – to have some insight into this because I think that a lot of these are confrontations with a loss of explicable meaning and nihilism mm-hmm. in people's lives. And, and what's taken over for this is uh, a feeling of collective purpose through tribalism and the imbuing of an authoritarian figure with meaningful intention and the support of that figure is placing one. I mean, the QAnon, are you familiar with QAnon? This whole thing? No. Oh my God! No, John. I'm not. All right, welcome to how I ruined your weekend. Um, <laughs> you, you, the QAnon phenomenon is. How do I want to describe this? Okay. On, are you familiar with uh, 4chan? Are you familiar with 4chan message boards? I've, yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, not deeply. I've heard of it. Uh-huh. Sure, that's how I get my hentai too. Um, when I'm trying to, the joke I'm making. I mean, yeah, don't respond to that, please. Um, the. <laughs> The uh, the the joke I'm making though is that uh, these message boards basically are uh, kind of the when Hillary Clinton referred to the uh, basket or the bucket of deplorables, what she really meant was bucket of 4chan users. Um, the, it's a it's a place on the internet where just things horrible things come from, and um, but it's a it's a completely open field. It's it's anybody can make it whatever it wants. It's not just the basket of deplorables. It's also people talking about video games and people talking about politics and all kinds of BS, but the concept behind QAnon is that there is a person who is represented by the moniker Q, who is within the Trump organization, who is very close to the president, who is working to undermine the deep state conspiracy that is going on inside of, and has been going on for decades inside of Washington. And President Trump is attempting to uncover and undermine this deep state shadow government that's actually been running things. And Q is the one communicator of that impulse and intention within the president's organization to the community of Q supporters and people who are interested in this kind of thing on the internet. And he, he, she, they, them, whoever this person is, drops bits of information to this group via a 4chan message board. This is how Pizzagate got started. Um, it's uh-huh. this this community of people who is re- basically receiving, you know, patterns and small cryptic messages from Q to, you know, basically let these people know what's really happening behind the scenes. So, the reason this is so powerful, I wish I was making this up. It sounds beyond the pale insane. It sounds insane with a capital I, 
in my opinion. But what mm-hmm. it but it's a powerful narrative because it functions as a kind of religion where a figure who is unknown and impersonal but is embodied somewhere in the world is dropping cryptic messages that you can read meaning into in whatever way you'd like, and it is casting you as the participant in the community of Q as one of the righteous fighters against this you know, disembodied evil that exists uh, for most Americans far away from where you live but yet can affect your life and the lives of all the people around you because laws have meaning and are far-reaching across the country. And it really has stepped into the role of, like, I think, religion for a lot of these people, that this is the kind of thing that they... I mean, I'll tell you, the New York Times covered this in a series called Rabbit Hole, which I would encourage you to go listen to. But honestly, John, Mm -hmm. I think being a philosopher of nihilism, this would be very interesting to you because when they talk to these people, this also has a lot of religious overtones and, and, and the language it uses... Um, is also sort of a co-opted from religion. And the real tragedy of this is that some politicians are being elected who are Q believers. There are people now in the House of Representatives who are truly believe that this is really what's going on and that they, they've come from this community and have risen to their you know, political authority based on this community's support, which is wow. mind-blowing to wow. me. Yeah, I mean, I used to play a video game when I was a kid called Q-Bert, but I guess that's a whole <laughs> different thing. But I, I mean, I, you know, immediately what you make me think of is, you know, if we could fast forward um, a thousand years, I wonder if this would be a mainstream religion. You know, if over, you know, over uh, thousands of years if its origins might be forgotten, just like the origins of, you know, of various other religions, and it might become the, you know, the kind of polite over, you know, mainstream type of uh, worship that you see, you know, today with, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian religions or Hinduism or something like that. There might be churches to, uh, to cue. Yeah, they, <laughs> the well, there very the well could be. Because, you know, I mean, the, the Q has incorporated into it some of this UFO quasi-religious stuff that people have developed. Uh-huh. And like the, the recent um, videos that the Navy released of, I think, three videos where they were like, the Navy was truly like, we're calling these, they weren't calling them UFOs, they're calling them unidentified aerial uh, objects or something, UAOs or something, where... Anyway, the the point of me saying this is that those people in that community, the Q community, believe that that was released based on the uh, the sort of the pushing from the Q uh, contingent within the U.S. government to release that stuff. So there could be some convergence between that, and then also the I mean, not only is a lot of the language co opted from you know religion, but in the study of in religious studies, Q comes from the, the term Q comes to refer to an unknown document that no longer exists of uh, yeah, called yeah Quotidia from the quotes of of Jesus, which was influential in the early church and and is you know the Gnostic Gospels of uh, Gnostic Gospel of Thomas and then the um, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke come directly mm-hmm. from that document which we of course don't have because it's been lost to history but that q refers in that community to that is the community of religious history to that document the quotidia so it's it's interesting to me that those things are sort of all happening in that environment yeah well the thing is that people i mean whether we like it or not people need something to believe in. They need, you know, you're thrown into into a world where, you know, I mean, you've got a finite a period of time to do something and people, you know, people need a direction. They need something to, you know, to, to uh, show them a way. And the times we're living in, um, a lot of the, you know, traditional forms of belief are just um, lost their plausibility for a lot of people. And so, I think there's a you know a scramble on many uh, many folks' part to find something something to give their life direction and meaning. Um, I you know it's uh, it's amazing to me to hear about you know something like you know, like this or you know talk about UFOs or whatever. Um, but you know people will you know people will glom on to whatever it is that 
they can. You know, they'd prefer to have meaning than not to believe in anything. Well, let's talk about your favorite uh, for the last few minutes of this podcast here. Let's talk about your favorite replacement of <laughs> of, of nihilism, <laughs> humor. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, what we're doing here is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a humorous approach to these things. And so far as, you know, we're taking an aesthetic perspective towards it, hopefully trying to understand things that we don't necessarily believe in. You know, and uh, and discuss them. And I think you know, humor is a healthy response to um, to all of these sorts of things and to meaninglessness. And when you're when you take a humorous response, you're 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 demanding pleasure from what might not otherwise give you pleasure. And uh, you're open to all kinds of different incongruities and uh, you know inconsistencies and different perspectives. And I think a humorous mind is you know is comfortable just sort of contemplating those things without demanding some sort of finality or some sort of final answer or conclusion from them, you know? I mean, to, to find something funny is not to demand that it's true. <laughs> You're just, That's true. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I do think that that's psychologically, it's, uh, it's, for me, it's a far healthier response to, you know, the fears and the hardships of the world than uh, uh, the type of seriousness you see in, some of the people that we're talking about. So what what is going on in the world of the philosophy of humor, and and what is your uh, what is your small or meaning or or or, or large contribution to that uh, community? Because I feel like you've been involved with a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, well, when I was in Chicago, we were having a meeting of the uh, International Association for the Philosophy of Humor. So um, yeah, there's a whole big group of us all over all over the world now that um, you know have kind of come together in order to uh, discuss and to write about and to publish about uh, about humor I mean, humor is sort of underrepresented in, um, in philosophy it's it's gaining more interest but traditionally it hasn't been a subject that's addressed um, you know widely by philosophers so yeah so the association has given us uh, you know a place to talk with one another and to, um, you know, an excuse to meet and to um, discuss um, issues. Uh, so we're publishing um, a yearbook, the Philosophy of Humor yearbook with the Gruder, that uh, the first issue, I think, is, is coming out in a couple months. And uh, so it's a collection of papers and such. John Morrell and Noel Carroll and uh, the rest of us have um, all contributed to it. So it should be a a pretty uh, a pretty cool journal um, if you're interested in you know in those types of issues. So yeah, I've been spending spending a lot of time uh, uh, you know editing that and reading papers and getting prepared for future uh, future editions of the yearbook. So yeah, that's, uh, I, um, I think that is so freaking cool. Man. Where can time. let me ask you this? Where if somebody's listening and they want might want to check out getting involved with either reading the yearbook or or the APA's. Uh, philosophy of humor um you know just group where can they go well there's a i believe there's a website for international association for the philosophy of humor um lydia amir she's the president of the group and also the um the general editor for all of the publications so um, if you go to the website which i i don't have right in front of me but um, um you can you know get in contact with us there or um, you can, uh, well, gosh, I guess contact you and, uh, you could, uh, you could yeah, forward I'll ta- Yeah, I'll forward, I'll forward them over to, to you or Lydia. Um, I'm, um, right, right. yeah, I, I'm, I'm, um, I love, I just, I love this group. I love that. Um, I have some involvement. I shouldn't talk too much about it, I guess, but you forwarded something for me to give some feedback on, which I'm excited mm-hmm. about. Um, I think it's just the coolest man. Um, what I just like, what is a, like, I, I'm sad I wasn't able to go to the one in Chicago, but what is like a, what is like a, when the International Association for Philosophy of Humor gets together, like what, what happens? Like, what do you, is there people who give stand up? Is there like, cause I know at one point, um, what I think, uh, we had talked, you and I, this is some time ago, but we had talked about, uh, there was a, there was a symposium or something that was going to be in Oxford. And I think like the comedian Stuart yeah. Lee was going to be a keynote speaker. And uh-huh. 
I, for some reason, wasn't able to do that, or I forget how what ended up happening around it, but... That sounds like a great... Honestly, it sounds like if you're a philosopher of any stripe, this is like the coolest thing for you to do is go hang out at a, with a bunch of philosophers of humor and comedians. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, that um, that conference was in the UK. There was going to be a conference in Italy, of course. <laughs> that, that didn't happen this year. Um, but uh, there were going to be stand-up comedians uh, there as well. Um, uh, at the APA meetings, uh, the association meets at each of the um, yearly meetings of the APA, which you know, has a, an East Coast, a Central Division, and then a, a Pacific meeting. Oh, the Pacific meeting this year is supposed to be up in Portland, uh, in case you're interested. But yeah, they, um, the APA doesn't um, normally have stand-up comedians, but some of the other conferences where the association meets does. Uh, at the APA conferences, we normally you know, just have a couple of sessions where there's uh, people reading papers and, uh, you know, uh, people uh, come in and just discuss the papers and, um, you know, talk about uh, issues related to it. It was at the um, at the uh, Chicago meeting, uh, things got a little bit uh, controversial at one point because I read a paper on uh, Diogenes and uh, one of his um, stunts, he was an ancient uh, Greek cynic, one of the stunts that he would pull was that uh, he would masturbate in public which I figured everyone would have been familiar with uh, at an APA conference, but there were a handful of people who weren't, and they took <laughs> great offense at it, and uh, sort of took it out on me, <laughs> telling me that I was that this wasn't funny. <laughs> oh my gosh! And you're like, <laughs> no, he really offensive. did that. <laughs> Wait, you weren't you weren't like embo- you weren't like embodying him by attempting the same. <laughs> no. Of course not. <laughs> no, I wasn't endorsing it either. I was simply reporting on it. But uh, I guess just the suggestion was enough to uh, upset certain people's sensibilities. Yeah, man, even a philosopher of humor can't get away without getting canceled these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it, was, uh, it kind of shocked me that um, there was that type of prudishness. Um, but in any case, that was about that's about as uh, controversial as it got in, at the uh, at the APA this year. But um, yeah, hopefully, it, uh, if uh, this pandemic ever eases up, we can uh, you know have meetings with uh, you know performers like yourself, uh, you know, doing some stand up and yeah, I would love that discussions man. about uh, about stand up comedy. I would love to do that. Yeah. I want to do a stand up. I would love to do a stand up routine about the history of humor and philosophy. I think it would be so much fun to talk about the fact that there is a school of philosophy called cynicism is fucking hilarious i think that is so funny to me that like that's the actual they were like oh yeah no diogenes the cynic like <laughs> it's a real it's so funny to me but uh, what i love about that is like he taught um he taught i forget the guy's name but he one of his students taught zeno who is the founder of the school of stoicism so like it it there's this there's this intellectual lineage that kind of goes back through that period of time and a lot of those oh, guys yeah. are hilarious. Were hilarious people. I think that stand-up philosophy was probably something that people really looked forward to because that's literally what they did. They just stood up in, you know, whatever the marketplace or they were performers. They yeah, were they, they were, were performing. they were doing they were doing performance. Yeah, absolutely. And their philosophy was through their bodies instead of um, you know making arguments like Socrates or uh, you know or Plato or Aristotle. What you know? What these guys did is they stood up and they they broke people's background expectations, and in the process, they revealed what it is that people assumed about the world. You know, the response to I... people that were hostile was not funny. Um, sometimes <laughs> it was violent. You know, sometimes it was uh, you know it was angry. But for people that were you know had a sense of humor, for people that um, were open to it, it, they were hilarious. Yeah, the cynics were hilarious. Well, I think about it now with Chappelle and like Dave Chappelle's uh, Sticks and Stones that came out and the humongous controversy that surrounded that, especially related to his when he was talking about trans issues and like how much how attacked he got online. But it's like it's funny because if you watch it, you're like, dude, he's he's an ally. He's a supporter. He's he's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. And in his 846 that he released in the post, you know, after George Floyd has was it's funny because a lot of people I know who are not every comedian I know immediately understood what he was doing, but normal people, even, even intelligent, normal people that I know, civilians, non-comics were like, I don't understand it. It wasn't that funny. And you're like, dude, if you, it doesn't have to be funny. Like he's, 
entered a realm like Diogenes where he's saying things that are true and difficult and he's trying to reconcile them and it has funny points but it, it's like a full it's more philosophy than it is humor necessarily although it's impossible to extricate from its from its humor if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean and well the, the humorous attitude in this case is revealed in the audience i mean i'm sure you've um, experienced it as a stand-up comedian where you have hostile audiences that don't think what you're doing is funny because they don't have the sense of humor well, I'm, this is this is this is so true. I just to, just to give an example of that, I have a joke where I say I talk about um, the uh, without belaboring this. I don't even know if you'll find this funny or not. But I have a joke where I say I was at the I knew Donald Trump was going to win the 2016 election because I haven't done this joke in a while. I, a, I knew Donald Trump was going to win the 2016 <laughs> election because I was at the Chicago Pride Festival and I heard someone say there are too many. N words in Lakeview today. There are too many N words in Lakeview. And then I go, but here's the, so I say that on stage and then I go, and here's Mm -hmm. the problem. That person didn't use the word, the term N word refers to, they use the term N word. And it was in that moment that I realized, holy shit, you can be politically correct and racist at the same time. And the joke is like this guy didn't use because the punchline is I'm like, and also what crowd are you trying to please? Because because progressives are like, dude, are you a fucking racist? But then racists are like, dude, are you even a fucking racist? Like, because it, it's weird. It's like it's too it's it's too much of one thing and not enough of the other. It's like he's not this guy's pleasing no crowd. The joke right, is, right. I think, obvious. Some some crowds love that joke, but some crowds and they get it. They're like, oh, shit, I get it. It's like this guy's the person I'm talking about is like an idiot, but some people get so caught up and I can't do the joke anymore because some people get so caught up that I even use the term N word on stage, not even the Mm -hmm. word that that term refers to that they've, they just check out right there. And it's strange to me because I'm like, no, if you just hang on to this joke, you and I believe the same things and we're both going to find it funny. But like people just can't, it's, it's almost like it's the same thing. It's like this, this politically charged atmosphere has prevented and I can't do it anymore, even though I think yeah. that it's a joke that's "quote unquote" on the right side of history. Um, I hear what I hear what you're saying. It's funny because the the explanation is funnier to me than the joke. I don't I don't understand all of the um, uh, the uh, references like what is it Lake Lakeside and such. Oh, Lakeview, so, just a community uh, in Chicago. Yeah, just okay. a yeah. yeah, and that that sounds like it would be key in understanding that joke, but. You know, the, your explanation really, uh, it strikes a chord with me. I was just talking with um, uh, my wife and with some friends about how we're living in a time now where there is not even a concern on most people's part to try to understand what other people believe, what yeah. they really believe, or what they're thinking, or to try to understand their point of view. People have already figured it out. They're so morally self-assured, and um, they're viewing... You know, their neighbors, they're viewing their community members, they're, they're viewing people in, you know, in their own country through the lens of threat. And that's not, a, you, you can't have a sense of humor that way. A uh, sense of humor is open. A sense of humor is willing to deal with ambiguities as though they're unthreatening. You know, that's what's required with the sense of humor. And the joke, as you explained it, requires that, that you, you're comfortable with sitting in that uncomfortable, ambiguous spot where you're not quite sure what, you know, what the intention is here. And that's funny, you know, and that's, it's, uh, it's aggravating to me that, um, uh, that uh, people are so unphilosophical today. I mean, philosophy, you know, in a broader sense than just humor requires open dialogue. It requires that people be charitable with one another and listen to one another and more than anything else, be willing to change your beliefs if someone has a stronger argument and has better logic and better facts than you. And people today just are not willing to do that, it seems, to a large degree. You know. Much to much to our mutual dismay. Um uh-huh. I uh I, I, I should we should probably wrap this up because we're we're a little over time, but uh, John Marmish, thank okay. you so much for being on the show again, man. Um where can people find you? Oh. Find your find your band. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, if you um, uh, if you want to um, hear Sacra Political, go on YouTube and uh, look up Sacra Political. We've been doing some recording during the uh, uh, pandemic time, so we're um, we're getting ready to actually um, uh, uh, press a, a record. 
So we're actually going. It's going to be vinyl. It's going to be real vinyl record. Yeah. Oh hell yeah, dude! Vinyl EP. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you a copy once we. Dude, uh, you're gonna get. You're gonna get so laid in high school. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, yeah. Look up Sacropolitical on YouTube, or you can uh, look at my uh, my uh, blog. What is it? It's uh, the Nihilist Void on WordPress. Um, You can contact me through there, or my email is. uh, um, You can find it on the College of Marin website. So. Uh, yeah, well, or just get a, hold of me. get a hold of me. Yeah, get a hold of me. Yeah, or get a hold of you over to John. But John, thank you so much for joining us again on the Madness Continues. Man, be well. You too. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Madness Continues podcast. Once again, this is Brendan Lemon. If you liked what you listened to, please take a minute to like, to subscribe, to give us a rating. It really does mean a difference. I say us like there's more than one person doing this. Uh, It's just me, everybody. So every little bit of support you can lend would be really appreciated by me. If you want to share this podcast, it would really, really, really mean a lot to me. I hope you come back. I hope you listen and check out the other podcast I produce, Funny Planet, where we talk to different comedians from all over the world about what they're doing and how they are funny in their own cultures. You can learn a thing or two and you'll have a laugh too. Anyway, take care. Take it easy. We'll see you here next time.